Hey guys, before we dive into this episode, I want to mention show sponsor Haya Vitamins. Now, this was a company started by two dads who were sick and tired of all the sugar and fillers in traditional children's vitamins. Think about it. The uh, the recipe hasn't really been changed in a long, long time. I mean, I grew up taking Flintstones vitamins and you look at the ingredients, it's all sugar. So that's where the dads and the doctors come in. They formulated this great product that's actually going to give your children the vitamins and minerals that they need to feel their best. Now, of course, if you're listening to this, you know they're going to hook you up with a great deal. If you go to hyahealth.com forward slash unstressed, you can save 50% on your first order. That's H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H.com forward slash unstressed to get your supplements for your kids today. And know that when you do, you are doing something good for their health and not something that's going to make them sicker in the process. So head on over to highhealth.com forward slash unstressed and get yours today. This episode is also brought to you by Motherhood Unstressed CBD. This is my line of organic USA grown hemp that was specifically designed to help you, the listener, battle stress and anxiety on a physical level. And what I think most people don't understand is CBD is not going to get you high. Yes, it comes from the hemp plant. The hemp plant looks exceedingly similar to the marijuana plant, but it doesn't have high levels of THC, which is the molecule that does create a psychoactive effect. CBD isn't going to get you there if that's what you were desiring, sorry, but it is going to help balance your endocannabinoid system, which is an overarching system that controls every other aspect of your body. So we're talking about sleep, your stress response, how happy you feel, your dopamine levels, all of those things. So if you are interested in feeling better and feeling less stressed, then head on over to motherhoodunstressed.com, click the shop tab and use the code podcast to save 20%. You are listening to the Motherhood Unstressed podcast and I'm your host, Liz Carlisle. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm so glad that you're here and that we're spending some time together. And in this episode, we're talking about crisis and the opportunity it presents for spiritual growth. And I'm speaking with Miguel Sancho and his wife, Felicia Morton, about their discovery that their son, Sebastian, had CGD, which is a disease which increases the body's susceptibility to infections caused by certain bacteria and fungi. Now, in this episode, we're learning about how their personal crisis taught them how to manage the chaos through various modalities of self-help, including their faith, therapy, and meditation, and how you can incorporate those hard-earned lessons of survival into your life. Their story reminds us that although life can be chaotic, with the right mindset and the right tools, we have the ability to persevere. Now, as a parent, their story was so gripping, and I know it's going to be that way for you. I mean, having anything happen to your child is by far the worst thing I think that can happen. Um, so to, to be able to witness that and see how they navigated that and, and how, as Miguel says, it wasn't always easy. He stumbled. But I think that, too, lifts a burden for all of us to hear that and to know that our humanness, our vulnerability truly is a strength. And when we are open to the lessons that life presents, we truly can grow, which was what I believe uh, we're all here to do. So I hope you enjoy this episode. If you do, please share it with a friend. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That does so much for the show. And I hope you enjoy this episode and that it brings value and light to your life. Enjoy. 
Well, hello, Felicia and Miguel. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you're both here. Thank you for having us. We're honored to be here. A wonderful opportunity to, um, to talk to you and talk to your audience. Yeah. And, and, you know, usually when I have authors on the show, I always ask, you know, where the inspiration came from. Obviously, this is a different case. Can you take us through Sebastian's journey and why you felt inspired to bring it to the page? Sure. Um, I'll start and then I'll ask Felicia to join in because she's so crucial to the story. Basically, we were blessed with a beautiful young daughter in 2008. And we kind of wanted to go back for seconds and have another child because the parenting experience had been so wonderful. Uh, our son, Sebastian, was born in 2012 in May. And then within about two months, uh, he started having a series of very strange and unexplicable and recurrent infections, uh, a numer- number of which required surgery. And ultimately, after um, about five months of this, Felicia, to her great credit, decided that we really needed to go deeper into the diagnostic odyssey, if you will, and not just kind of write these off as, you know, these are things that some kids get and go to an immunologist. And that's ultimately where we received this rather devastating diagnosis that he had been born with a very rare, very lethal immune deficiency that would end up changing the course of our lives. And I'll let Felicia kind of take it from there because she did take it from there. Yes, he was diagnosed with uh, chronic granulatomous disease, which means that his body could not fight off a, a handful of bacteria and a specific type of fungus. And so suddenly our lives were turned upside down. Um, at the time I had been working um, for myself, I'd started my own public relations firm and we were you know, a typical Manhattan couple that was looking to, to make it in the big city. Both, both um, Miguel and myself are, are from the Midwest. And so it was always, I think our dream to, um, to do what we could to become successful, have a, have a family in, in New York. And uh, then I had to take a step back and, and reprioritize my life. And I have to say that, um, well, this book is, is all about that and, and the steps that we took to find new meaning in our life through Sebastian and the journey that we were on, how it took us from being people who were just focused on the day-to-day, what we needed to do to get ahead to, to seeking what really life was about and putting our, our family first, faith first, uh, looking to science to help us um, find what would be the ultimate cure for Sebastian. So I hope that answers your question. The book is about a lot of things, but uh, I touched upon some of the the, ma- the major themes. Right, right. And it definitely comes across in the pages. And I love, Miguel, how you say, you know, this book is a, is a valentine to science. Um, can you talk about what you've learned about, you know, the world of immunology and the progress that it's made and why it helped you have a sense of hope and optimism for the human race? Yeah. Well, just broadly speaking, I think that, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting little paradox of our times that we live in a highly data-driven, highly technical society that on the one hand kind of worships at the feet of technological progress and scientific progress. But at the same time, there's a strain of kind of anti-scientific or pseudoscientific uh, thinking that I think leads people to a lot of um, potentially uh, destructive decisions. Um So basically what happened here is that we kind of fell into the world of immunology and 
just kind of getting a better sense, better understanding of how the, the body actually works, how this magnificent thing called the immune system functions. Um, in our son's case, it wasn't functioning um, the way it should, but we were lucky enough, and I do mean lucky, um, to be diagnosed with a disease at basically the best time in human history to have this diagnosis. Uh, it was right at the time when this rather daring, rather experimental um, medicine practice of um, hemopoietic stem cell transplants, or basically uh, bone marrow transplants, had evolved through a lot of really harsh trial and error to the point where it was now available uh, for certain kinds of immune deficiencies, including our son. Now, actually getting from the idea that, oh, there might be a cure to actually, you know, finding um, a way forward and finding a match and going through that whole process took all sorts of, you know, suffering and patience and setbacks and frustration, um, but largely because of, I want to give Felicia all the credit in the world here, largely because of her research and her perseverance and her strength and her faith. Um, we were able to kind of sustain all the various setbacks we had along the way and also find doctors who were not just kind of compassionate enough, not just uh, expert enough, but frankly, daring enough to kind of take some of the risks that were necessary to, um, to try to get to the healthy outcome that we got. Yeah. Yeah. And Felicia, for every mother listening to this, you know, we can't imagine going through this. Many, many are going through their own struggles. What got you through it day in and day out at Duke University Hospital, you know, doing these these new, basically, procedures, having to do the the day-to-day procedures on your son. And when, Miguel, you described that in the book, I mean, I, I felt it, you know, in my heart, in my belly, when you're, you know, ripping off the patches. Um, take us through what got, what got you through that. I had... Um been fortunate to have been uh, raised in a family that had faith. And like many uh, young people, I had gone off on my own and I didn't find uh, much room in my life for God. I was more focused on my work and my family and and all the things I've mentioned before. And it's a, it's a typical journey that we have, right? It's, that's why it's written about in the Bible with the prodigal son. And so um, I was a, a prodigal daughter, if you will, and I didn't realize how much my faith meant to me until I I was at rock bottom and I'd gotten that diagnosis and it was so devastating to me that I, I started to rely on God more. I, I prayed and uh, little by little, I started started to feel that my relationship with God grew. And it reached a point where we were going to Duke and uh, we were there for a consultation. And we thought we had everything planned. We were good planners, right? And uh, we were there just to meet with the doctors and ask them about the upcoming transplant that we had scheduled for the summer. And uh, we were we were there in March. And as um, Miguel's book begins, uh, just before we left, Sebastian, came down with a fever. And I knew in my heart, something was different about this one. And um, when we got to the hospital, they said uh, that Sebastian needed to stay. He had his first fully life-threatening 
disease. They had found 12 granulomas on his lungs and this uh, infection was uh, slowly trying to kill him. So we needed to immediately admit him. And when my life went from being something I thought I could plan and something I could schedule, I realized that I needed to let go. We can't plan our lives uh, when we are in the middle of a crisis. The one thing we know about a crisis is that something is going to change. And there's actually some relief in that. And so when I realized that my life was about to change, I only could pray and, and see this crisis as an opportunity for change for the better for myself, for my family. And that change could only happen with God because I was not in control anymore. I had to put my faith not in, in myself, but in God and also, of course, in the doctors. And so actually what I felt was a tremendous relief because I'd been feeling so responsible for keeping my son alive for all this time, for, for almost four years, that a tremendous burden was lifted from me. And I, I literally saw Sebastian going up in the hands of God and I said, he's yours now. Mm. And once I felt that, um, I was able to be there, fully engaged with my son and feel a sense of peace and a sense of love wash over me that I'd never quite felt before. And I felt like I was being held as well. And God never let go. Uh, I, I don't know why. And, and we go, who go through this never quite feel like we're worthy of this infinite love once we experience it. But it, it was very profound. And I can only feel grateful that I was there to be fully present with my son during the course of his treatment. And that's what's so important as well, right? That we can bring a sense of calm, a sense of peace, that energy to our children, whether they're going through a life-threatening infection and transplant or just every day. Right, right. And it's it's almost like, you know, the lessons in this book are so applicable to, you know, the time of COVID. And you even touch on that, Miguel. What can you share with, with everyone listening? How do we weather these uncertain times. I love how you kind of just say, hey, you know, it could be a lot worse, essentially. You talked to us about what got you through, Miguel. And and I know you're pretty honest about it, it wasn't always an easy path. No. I mean, I think oftentimes um, stories like this tend to gravitate to a narrative where, you know, you know, quote unquote, normal parents have this huge setback with a diagnosis. And then somehow, you know, they magically tap into this infinite reservoir of resources or uh, compassion or um, um, strength. And I want everybody to know that um, that's not always the case, that, you know, it's a very hard, very difficult, very harrowing experience um, to go through, you know, a child's sickness, but to go through any major crisis. And um, the kind of neat narrative of being able to just kind of magically overcome it is not necessarily always the case. You know, a lot of severe things happen in, in the wake of these diagnoses. And, um, you know, in my particular case, you know, I found myself, you know, having all sorts of, you know, failures and breakdowns and, uh, you know, things that I'm not necessarily proud of. Um, and that's what led me to uh, ultimately kind of exploring and embracing almost every form of self-help you can find, you know, uh, on the Internet um, 
faith uh, was one of them, although Felicia and I, in the book, we have different kind of approaches to uh, faith and different kind of takes on it at various points. Um, you know, meditation was a big, um, much needed um, a part of my, my program, as I call it. Um, getting therapy, uh, getting medication if you need it, um, trying to stay healthy and, and take care of your body. All these things are kind of part of a constellation of uh, approaches that you should um, not be at all embarrassed about or ashamed of. I think I might be speaking more um, to and for men in this particular case. And I found, and I don't want to uh, generalize about gender uh, tendencies, but my, I can certainly say in Felicia's case, she was always more open to kind of getting help and, and exploring modalities of um, self-improvement. Whereas I was always kind of resistant and I thought I was okay. And I, I tried, you know, I tried other things. I tried denial. I tried stoicism. And, you know, those things will only take you so far when, when you're given more than you can handle, as the, as the title suggests. Specifically relating to the, uh, to answer your question more directly, you know, for people dealing with COVID, you know, I, I, I try to, you know, very humbly, because um, I don't consider myself an expert, but, you know, to the degree that I'm um, had some experience with this because we lived basically for six years in some version of quarantining and social distancing and germophobia. Um, you know, you got to understand that this can play with your head as much as it can play with your body. These extended quarantines, this fear of invisible microbes, it's very easy for your mind to start playing tricks on you um, when you're living with this on a daily basis. And the second thing is, you know, the quarantine stinks. The lockdowns stink in a lot of ways. Um, there are many things that I wish were different. But you can also try to make an opportunity out of them. I mean, there was a wonderful um, moment in our um, experience, kind of because the way it works is in addition to going into the hospital and spending, you know, two months or more in this hermetically sealed transplant unit at the hospital, you then have to spend months and months afterwards in your apartment, in extreme lockdown mm -hmm. that everybody's kind of familiar with. And at the time, Felicia had some wonderful words of wisdom about trying to use it as an opportunity to have just extended quality time with your children, with the people close to you, that under normal circumstances, you're often not able to, not because you're a bad person, but just because we're always being bombarded with distractions and other obligations. Um, and then the third thing is, yeah, I mean, just to remind people that obviously you want to be safe, you want to you know follow the science, but we're never going to live in a world of complete safety. The, the myth of total and utter safety and lack of risk is a mental trap. Mm. And uh, again, I'm not advocating reckless or irresponsible behavior, but what I'm saying is that you know, at some point, you know, when, whether you get in a car, whether you shake someone's hand, whether you, um, you know, go swimming in the ocean, you have to accommodate some level of risk. And what, what level of risk that is, is a very personal thing, right? But living in fear, to me at least, is not really living. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like this experience has fortified you, not just, you know, mentally, but emotionally as well to really, when anything comes at you now, do you just kind of say, like, this is nothing, you know, like we've been through much worse together. How has it changed you as people? Well, first I'd like to say this, this, um, no, it never really goes away when we, when, um, parents have been through something like this and, 
Uh, although I can speak for myself personally, I, I, I have been transformed in that I, I really saw the best of people as well. My faith in humanity was reinforced. Not only was my faith reinforced, but the outpouring of love that I experienced from people who just came out of the woodwork and from the nurses, from the doctors, it was life affirming. And so in terms of how that has made me more resilient, I always go back to that. And when life gets me down or when I just look at what's happening outside in the world and, and I say, oh my gosh, when, you, when we watch the media, mm -hmm. it can just be so depressing. And I remember going back to the transplant unit where I almost wanted to go back in the unit at that time. It was 2016. It was a very difficult time in our country as well. And in the unit, however, we were surrounded by love, by people from all different races, ethnicities, socioeconomic backgrounds who were going through the worst time of their lives, these families. And yet we would get together and we would pray together. We would talk. We would break bread. We would uh, eat. We would, we would laugh. We would cry. The nurses would hug us, pray with us. The doctors would uh, be there with their reassuring uh, smiles and, and their scientific authority to give us a lot of strength and, and uh, confidence. And so I go back to those times and I, and I realize that that's a well within me from which I can draw. And uh, in terms of trying to deal with whatever life uh, throws at us, um, well, uh, one way that I've also dealt with that is I've started an advocacy organization because there were so many people who came forward and helped me and uh, mothers, especially who were there for me, who talked about their sons who went through this, who were on the other side, who, who were the light at the end of the tunnel for me. And they were like a lifeboat that I felt like I could jump on and, and they would take me to where they were with their healthy children. And, and I was so grateful to them. So what I've done is I started an organization called the CGD Association of America to help advocate for uh, patients and uh, families with CGD and, and advanced research. And, and a big part of that is, is talking to other moms. And uh, they're the ones who give me strength because uh, when I am reminded also of what they're going through and their journey, it brings me back to center. Yeah. I would, I would just add to that, that the, the two things that I think we've both kind of gained from it are first of all, a really broader sense of gratitude. Um, if it's just a matter of seeing our son Sebastian toddle off to school with his backpack or seeing him, you know, eat a piece of fish or seeing him, you know, playing with a friend. I mean, all of these things um, that we, you know, just prayed and dreamed he could do when he was first diagnosed and who's going through that for years and years. Now that he's able to do that, we are just so fulfilled and, and elevated by being able to witness those experiences, you know, and yes, it took something out of us. Right. I sometimes think of like the book, the giving tree. Yeah. Um, so it took a toll on us and we'll, we're still dealing with it in a lot of ways, but just being able to see him thrive and grow you know, I mean, at the end of the giving tree, the tree ends up a stump, but a pretty happy stump, a pretty satisfied stump. Um, the other thing I would say is that it's, I think, and speaking personally now, I think it fortified us to a certain degree to deal with hardship. Just speaking on a recent uh, personal note, 
Um, you know, my mother died this mm-hmm. fall uh, after a struggle with cancer, and it was very hard. Um, and even though I'd spent, you know, years dealing with, you know, the health struggles of people and seeing, you know, life and death up close, I wasn't entirely prepared for it. But again, it was something that I was able to make peace with. She was certainly at peace. She was tranquil at the end and just kind of embracing our own mortality and being able to approach it with a certain, uh, a certain natural nobility uh, that I think is crucial for just kind of being able to cope with this world that comes at you so intensely and so continuously that um, it can really break you if you let it. Yeah. Yeah. And I love how you don't, you know, present yourself as, as these stoics who just push through and battle through. I mean, you show so well the, the human element and it's not like you got there easily. You got there honestly. Um, Can you talk about not just the emotional growth that you went through, um, but the mental toll that it took, you know, you talk about in the book, how you don't expect how it messes with your psychology so much, just doing the day-to-day stuff. Cause I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, especially when they're in a crisis situation. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, uh, I'll keep it brief. The, you know, there's science about this. There's a whole department of, of neuroscience at Yale that studies, um, stress and its effects on the brain. And I have, I was lucky enough to be able to interview one of the, uh, the doctors up there and the professors up there, um, and she explained that under periods of chronic stress, okay, not just the acute stress that you know you're walking through the jungle and you see a tiger and you you know have to fight or flight, but if it's prolonged, that actually does reduce the size and the neuroactivity of cells in the prefrontal cortex. Right, your some of those imp- and the prefrontal cortex, of course, is what's involved with things like strategic thinking, planning. Um, uh, you know, kind of the the intricacies of human relationships, yeah. all that stuff. It's important. You don't want to be without a prefrontal cortex. Um, and at the same time, you know, the amygdala uh, kind of uh, hypertrophies. It grows, which is what's, you know, again, in charge of the fight or flight response. Um, and that can deal with things like, you know, uh, adrenaline responses during moments of anger and, you know, kind of what you kind of have to do to defend yourself in periods of intense stress. Anyway, the point being, over a long period of time, that affects your brain, and you need to be conscious of that, and you need to be conscious of how to try to uh, counteract those uh, negative effects, and there are all sorts of different ways you can do that, and for me, um, my one of my preferred methods is meditation, and I don't want to be um, preachy about it, but... Oh, the just, audience loves meditation for this yeah. show, so please, <laughs> away. I will say, I listened to one of your meditations this morning, and... Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, it uh, it helped me out. I was I was thinking about um, the root chakra that you reference in one of your meditations, and just trying to be connected through literally through your seat, yeah. um, and just to kind of acknowledge the fact that you are a skeleton um, on planet Earth, feeling the forces of gravity, and kind of trying to um, never lose sight of that fact that we're we're rooted in this reality and. Um, the, the name of the game is to try to make th- make it through um, without letting your own suffering cripple you, and without increasing the insu- the suffering of others, which is very easy to do if you're if you're not mindful of that. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And I like how in the book, you talk about the melding of the science world and the spiritual world. Felicia, can you talk about how your faith maybe changed and grew? I know you touched on a little bit, but for the woman listening to this now who who might not feel so close to God or her faith, you know, speak to her and, and, and how that helped you. There uh, may be a point in every mother's life when um, you realize that you're not in control. And we can look at that moment as, as a blessing because it's a call. It's a call to us to say, there's so much of life actually that's not in our control. We try as moms to control as much as we can, but ultimately we're faced with the reality that we cannot always protect our children. We cannot always protect ourselves. We have a, an innate understanding of this, and yet it might be hard for us to cede control to a higher power. And I just remember when uh, I had only expected Sebastian to be at a consultation for a few days at the hospital, and they said, no, Felicia, he needs to stay here, and we actually recommend that he has a bone marrow transplant now. I'd only packed for three days, and um, we ended up spending nine months at Duke University Hospital. And at that point, I knew that I wasn't in control anymore. And it was, as I said, a tremendous relief. And I think every mother can relate to this, that when we can have a moment just to feel that connection with God and ask him to take over. It's a tremendous relief for us because we're under so much pressure, especially now as mothers. And just to give ourselves that time, that time to meditate on God's love and also time with other friends who we, with whom we can fellowship, who can support us, who can support us spiritually. That's so important and that goes beyond, you know, the friends. So often as moms, we can get into like a, a habit of going out with moms for a drink or, or you know, not so much during COVID, but uh, hopefully after COVID's over, um, we'll go out with our, our friends uh, again. But to have friends with whom we can share our spirituality is so nourishing for us. It's different. So, it's different yes. than a glass of wine. Exactly. It nourishes It nourishes us um, in, our, uh, in, in a way that is beyond, uh, yes, as you said, uh, um, and nurses our soul. And so we need that. So it, that's the advice that I would give to moms. And I love what you've, you've said about self-care. I feel that the ultimate form of self-care is to give yourself a sense of peace and give yourself a sense of connection to God, because that's the ultimate form of peace that you can share with yourself. And then you can share that with your family and share it with your friends and they can share it with you. And it's a self reinforcing mirror of peace that you can have at any time. It's totally available to us at any time. So many times we think, Oh, we can't meditate because we can't have a quiet spot or we can't, you know, I also love essential oils. And I think oh, I have to, you know, go to my drawer and get the essential oils out <laughs> and get the diffuser. And I just don't have time, even if it only takes like 30 seconds. Right. But you know, that's really, that's really a wonderful thing too. And I, in the book, we talk about essential oils and how, how important they are, but prayer is available to us anytime. So, so that's, what's, 
so wonderful about it. It's accessible when we're driving in the car, when we're cooking dinner, when we're uh, thinking we're about to uh, lose our temper with our children, we can take a deep breath and we can say a silent prayer and only takes a few seconds and uh, we're right back to hopefully where we need to be. Absolutely. And the only thing I, I wanted to add to that um, is that I think some people, and maybe I was one of those people, um, kind of categorize or envision this strict dichotomy, mutually exclusive dichotomy between science and between faith. Um, and one of the things that I took steps towards understanding is that it's not necessarily the one or the other. Um, just as, you know, at, to use one specific example, at the moment of the transplant, we're in the unit, we're in this tiny room. After all this research and science and study, they've found a match from an unrelated umbilical cord sample, and they're about to infuse it into Sebastian. And they think it's going to work, but they really don't know for sure. They think they have an understanding of how things should work out, but given the, some of the variables, it's not a guarantee. It's not a guarantee that the cells are going to engraft. It's not a guarantee that he's going to have a smooth post-engraftment um, outcome. It's not a guarantee that he'll be able to avoid any of these other mines in the minefield that exist between where we were then and where we are now. And it's not like the, the doctors could do anything more. They were at the very edge of their abilities and their, their knowledge. And of course, the more science progresses, the more those abilities and the knowledge will increase. But at that moment, there was nothing left to do but put faith in the divine, in the universe, in the body, in whatever you want to call it. God, go ahead. The point is that at a certain point, if you are going to find strength to get through something like this, the science will only take you so far. And when you see people praying, when you see people relying on God, that doesn't mean that they're just superstitious. It doesn't mean that they just have a you know, an anti-scientific you know, interpretation of the world. They haven't just abandoned their critical facilities to enter um, some sort of relationship with the divine. It often means that they are at the end of their own abilities, their own limits, their own um, capacities for strength and endurance. And they're trying to tap into something else to help them take that next step. And I think that's something that people need to um, respect. Yeah. Yeah. And just the title of the book, More Than You Can Handle. Clearly, this is something that, you know, it would be more for any parent to handle. And so, yeah, to bring in that spirituality that, that be held by something greater than you, I think is, is something we can all cling to. Miguel, I have to have you um, expand on this one quote from the book because it was so beautiful. Um, let's see. It says someone, a doctor said to you, it's not age that prepares you for death. It's how you live. Talk to us about that. I highlighted it. It was such a powerful quote in the book. Yeah, um, it, just, just a mild uh, amendment to that. It was actually one of the uh, patient counselors who's a, who's a very serious, in fact, a very well-respected um, meditation practitioner um, named John Seskovich, who was introduced to me um, via another very well-respected uh, uh, meditation uh, expert. Yeah, um, you know, the point is that he had seen and counseled tens of thousands of patients and their families over the course of his 40-year career there. People of all different faiths, everything from, you know, Islam to Wiccanism and to, to strident, you know, 
secular humanism. And what he was trying to communicate to me is that it's not just your experience. It's not just racking up years on the planet that give you a sense of peace at the end. It's how you approach every single day, every single moment, every single decision, every single human interaction. Um, are you going to engage in practices such as metta or loving kindness? Are you going to be compassionate to yourself? Are you going to try to live by some other principle other than your immediate appetites? Um, and are you going to be able to actually examine yourself and say, you know what, I could do better. Um, I have these imperfections. I, there are things I need to work on. And I think that's what he was trying to say, that if you approach your existence the right way, you can be a little bit more at peace with the end of it. Hmm. Okay, so I have one final question to round out this interview for both of you. Um, you know, with everything that you've been through, with everything that you've learned along this incredible journey, you know, actually our sons are the same age, born in the same month. So I feel very connected to your story. Um, what is something that you want the audience to remember from this talk? No pressure. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh well, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah, the word, the word pressure actually comes to mind because when um, something like this happens uh, and there are times in everyone's life when we're under incredible, intense pressure, uh, it, it breaks you open. It, it, uh, it, it's something that breaks you and that might be a good thing. It might be a good thing to be broken because it's an opportunity. And that's the word that kept coming to me during Sebastian's transplant. This is an opportunity. This is an opportunity for new life. So whenever we are in a crisis, whenever we feel like we are about to break, allow yourself to go there and it's going to be messy. And that's why uh, when Miguel wrote this book and there are just so many things in there um, that are very personal. Um, and it was very scary to put myself out there and scary for Miguel as well. Uh, it's it's not pretty what we went through in our relationship and and our struggles and, and struggles with faith and um, and everything else and, and and the fear and the anxiety. All of that was really real. But um, if you can allow yourself to be broken and then work on putting yourself back together, the humbling experience of going through that uh, might just be the transformation um, that you need. Beautiful. And I would just say um, to folks, be on the lookout for the kind of false and temporary um, reliefs or things that might pass for solutions or alleviations. Um, you know, anger can be a very kind of euphoric experience, right? An outburst of anger can make you feel big and can make you feel powerful and can make you feel in control. Um, but anger is a very destructive um, and toxic thing. And um, I'm, I've had issues with anger and I regret every one of them. And I would just say to people, you know, yes, you're allowed, you know, you're not supposed to be perfect all the time. We're not all saints. Um, but if you find yourself sliding into these behaviors that are contributing to the suffering, that are making things worse for your own sake, for the sake of people around you, for the sake of what's important in your life, take those deep breaths, do the inner inventory, get the help, 
and you know try to check yourself. Um, you know we're all we're all susceptible to tripping up. We're all susceptible to um, failing. Um, you don't have to hate yourself, but you know part of being a grown up, part of being you know part of a family, part of being part of a society, is taking responsibility for your actions and dealing with what's in front of you. Absolutely. Okay. Finish this sentence. I believe. I believe in the in the supreme um, value of human life and human interactions. And um, what that means is we need to have more um, compassion for each other. We need to have greater tolerance for each other. We need to um, not be as quick to judge, not be as quick to label. Um, and we need to be more open to communication uh, with people with whom we don't necessarily um, align perfectly with people that we might um, have reasons to avoid or disagree with um, because ultimately communication is all we have. And um, that's, that's how we move forward both as individuals and as a, as society. And um, I, I believe in the, in the transformative power of, this is going to sound weird, but, but, uh, suffering because when we we suffer uh, that's when we're laid bare that's when we're humbled that's when we can really understand who we are and and what is important and as, as strange as it sounds what we went through with Sebastian is a gift we would never wish this on our, our child but we would have never been able to learn about ourselves about humanity, about our family, about God, uh, without going through this this period of suffering, and it wasn't all suffering. There's there's tremendous joy too in suffering, as as um, odd as that may sound. But don't be afraid. I would say to 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 um, look at things and and go through this process. And so I believe that's what I believe that that there is a transformative power in our own suffering and our own vulnerability. And it's something that in terms of self-care, we can go through it ourselves, caring for ourselves through the whole process. And also it's a way for us to more deeply connect with others. So that's what I believe. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> no, it absolutely does. It is such an awakening, you know, suffering. And, and if you can be open to it and fully awake when it's happening, I think it not only transforms you, but you bringing your story through this book, through this interview, you're awakening so many other people. So thank you. Now, the book is More Than You Can Handle, A Rare Disease, A Family in Crisis, and the Cutting Edge Medicine that Cure the Incurable. Where can our audience find the book? Yeah, so uh, our publishers at Avery, which is an imprint of uh, Penguin Random House, are doing a great job getting it out there. It should be on Amazon, should be on Barnes & Noble. Um, I would hope it's in local bookstores uh, starting uh, next Tuesday, March 2nd. We just tell people that it was written with um, ongoing respect for the fact that people have lots of other books they can read and lots of Netflix shows they can stream and lots of other things to do with one's disposable time and income. So... Um, yes, it is our story, but it really was, uh, I was trying to keep the reader in mind and make it a kind of rewarding reading experience for somebody who's going to uh, put their nose into it. And, uh, yeah, you don't have to suffer too much reading this. There, there's some, there's some humor <laughs> in it as well. 
Yeah. You know, it's it's not just a uh, it's not just like, you know, St. Augustine's Confessions or something. <laughs> we're trying to, it's written for a modern audience. And, Avery uh, would never allow such a book to go to press, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, so, you know, give it a shot. And by the way, I mean, I, I'd love to also hear feedback about it because it's my first book I've written for a broadcast and other media before, as as has Felicia. Um, so, you know, there's certainly ways to make it better. And I would love to um, to hear how to make it better uh, or to make another book. Uh, better um, the audience feedback and and um, input is really precious in that regard. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Felicia and Miguel. Um, I will link your organization in the show notes. So if you were listening to that and you're interested in learning more about Felicia's organization, that'll be in there. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you for this book. Thank you for your bravery in getting personal and putting it out there because I know already in my heart, it's going to uplift so many parents out there. So thank you. Well, thank you for the great work you do. And, you know, there's a million people to thank, but you're obviously doing great work yourself. Um, I've enjoyed, you know, listening to a number of your podcasts and I think you're performing a really valuable service. So thank you. Absolutely. You've been listening to the Motherhood Unstressed podcast and I'm your host, Liz Carlisle. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm so grateful that we got this time together today. And if you love this episode, I would so appreciate it if you would share it out on your social media. Make sure to tag us at Motherhood Unstressed. Connect with us at Motherhood Unstressed. I'd love to connect with you uh, and see where the work has gone in the world. And make sure that you subscribe so that you never miss out on an amazing interview with an incredible guest or our weekly guided meditations every Wednesday. Till next time, see ya.